This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and is number 29 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. We have just read together in this meeting the first chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews uh, which among other subjects introduces one phase and aspect of truth we want to consider today in this meeting the word image. Although the actual word image does not occur, verse 3 gives you something of the same idea. Speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, although the word image is there, uh, it's not exactly the same, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. The Son of God, We think of the Son of God from many aspects. We think of that child at Bethlehem. We think of the one who had not where to lay his head. We think of the one who stooped to the cross. But this Son of God, this one that we speak of as Jesus the Christ, has more wonderful sort of relationships to fill than just those which are to do with our own immediate salvation. There is a purpose that God has and this question of the word image is not limited to say the commands concerning idolatry or even the revelation concerning the likeness. But the first so far as time is concerned to the image of God goes back before creation. Shall we just look at Colossians chapter 1? Colossians chapter 1 I say just look there's such an immensity of subject there that it could occupy us not only for this afternoon but many more times but I'm just asking you to notice that before we have the before creation comes into existence here is the title It speaks about redemption in verse 15 of of Christ who is the image the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature and then he tells you why not because he was the first one to be created as some have put it but he was the one who created everything else and not only everything else but created everything that's conceivable in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, not only things, but powers, thrones, dominions, principalities, all created by him, and not only so, what a claim here, and for him. So you see, the image of the invisible God is a tremendous issue. It would take all the philosophers of the world, I suppose, together to try to explain it. I'm I'm no philosopher, but I can feel this, that if God, who is spirit and invisible, is going to make a world and speak to those of us in it who are so limited, he himself must come down. We cannot go up. He must come down and he must assume some form in which we can conceive him. Because God, who is equally here in this chapel, 
And with you, dear friends, at the ends of the earth when you read, have this tape recording, and also regulating things beyond the Milky Way, is someone that we cannot think of or imagine. And we're not asked to do so. The more we know of, this, of the teaching of Scripture concerning Christ, the more he fills the bill so far as it's possible for us at this present moment to conceive. But there are other aspects beyond this mighty sweep for which I don't feel very uh, equipped to speak, although it's there in the Scriptures. Let us go back, shall we, to Genesis 1 and notice what happened when this six days creation was brought to its crisis at the creation of man. The Bible doesn't say that just about 6,000 years ago the whole universe was created. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and no date is put to that. And you've only got to examine the rocks of the earth or think of molten metal being run into veins and still there. Or aluminium being in existence in the earth and nobody ever saw it till they resolved the heaps of red earth and found it was the oxide of aluminium or something. You, you can't think that all these things just happened a few generations ago. What, 6,000 years in the beginning? And then you remember that it doesn't say and the earth was without form and void. The word there is the word to become. Like it says man became a living soul. And the earth became without form and void. There are two words translated was in that verse and the second one is in italics, you see, different word. Well now that brings us to the reforming of the earth for man. The earth was there already on the third day. It doesn't say God created the earth. It says and let the dry land appear and he called it earth. And then on the sixth day of this reconstruction, man is brought into being. And it doesn't say, let the earth produce man. There's a stop. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, that's rather an involved statement, isn't it? And as far as I've been able to resolve the original language and put it into English, this is what we would have to say. And God said, let us make man in the likeness of our image. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, wait till you get to the other parts of Scripture and Christ is the image of the invisible God. And man was made in the likeness of Christ before he came into this world. He was made in the likeness of him who in his turn was the image of the invisible God. A little likeness here of the gigantic, overwhelming image there. So you see, man is not merely just a two-legged creature that we think of. He was put here at the head of a creation. Let him have dominion. But you know he failed. But Psalm 8, as we were looking at last week, Psalm 8 looks at Adam and the dominion given to him. But when the Apostle quotes Psalm 8, he doesn't say all sheep and oxen. He said he has put all things under his feet so universal that God himself is accepted. That's all. But we won't go into that because it would take us all our time again. 
So, you see, you cannot, for the moment, dispose of this question of the image and say, well, it's not important, don't worry about it. It meets you at the beginning. And the very great name Adam is built up of the very same word that gives us the word likeness. Demos, D-M, is the uh, basis of the word Adam, and D-M is the basis of the word shadow or likeness. And Romans in the fifth chapter says that Adam was the figure, figure, likeness, image, figure of him that was to come. In his little dominion, he was a picture on earth of the vast dominion that we could only think of in abstract terms because it has no beginning or end and no ability on our part to encompass. Well now, that image is evidently a definite feature. It wasn't merely given to Adam and it ceased. Because after the flood, after the flood, when man had came out onto the earth again and started all over again, and Noah gives some sort of rules, or God gave to Noah some sort of rules, he again reminds us that in the image of God made he man. And James, after he's written about the wickedness of man, he says, nevertheless, man made in the similitude of God, so he brings it right up to date. Well, then there's another aspect of this, um, this um, uh, image. While it's impressed upon us that there was this need for an image. When Moses is writing, I think we'll get the chapter and verse for this, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4. When Moses is writing, he says to them, the children of Israel, about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 12. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only ye heard a voice. And yet you, you remember that it was said of Moses himself in the book of Numbers, you get that too, chapter 12. In the book of Numbers, chapter 12, and I think it is verse 5, but we can verify it. Um, I'm sorry, I think it's verse 8. Yes, Numbers 12, verse 7, My servant is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark sense speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. So Moses told them that when the law was given at Mount Sinai, you saw no similitude, and I think the reason is because of the tendency of human nature to invent an image. So the very first commandment of the ten, the very first commandment was not to do with moral issues or relationships of one another. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Thou shalt, thou shalt not make unto yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything. So we have two things then. 
at the giving of the law, an absolute prohibition to use an image, and yet to the very lawgiver, he spoke as man speaks to his friend. And who did he speak with? With whom did Moses converse? And the similitude of the Lord did he behold? Did he behold some graven image? No. He spoke with the one that we know who walked the earth later days as Jesus the Christ before his incarnation. The similitude of the Lord is the title of Christ and it's expressly so put in the epistle to the Colossians who is the image of the invisible God. I think you'll agree with me that this is a subject that is a very vast one and all I can do is to point a few outstanding features about it. Well now, let's take it a stage further. When our Saviour was here upon earth and they were questioning him, he said, show me a penny. And they showed him a penny, they gave him one. Whose image and superscription is this? Caesar's. Well, this is render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. So the image was not something to worship. The image was an evidence of authority. Whose image is this? Caesar's. Well, render to Caesar the thing that belongs to him. So we're getting a little idea that this image is an important feature in the purpose of God and in the outworking of his purposes of grace to us. Shall we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which discusses this question of the image both with regard to Adam and with regard to the future. 1 Corinthians 15 he's speaking about the future. Verse 44 It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body then he stops. He says there is a natural body you remember and there is a spiritual body. You may at first think, oh, there can't be a spiritual body. You could be a body or a spirit. But you and I are not going to be spirits. You and I are not going to be just spirits. He says there is a spiritual body just the same as there is a natural or a soulish body. Now, Adam didn't have a spiritual body. He was of the earth, earthy. He had a natural or, as it would be better if we could use the expression, a soulish body because he became a living soul. But in the resurrection, you will have a spiritual body, and you've only got a faintest conception of what a spiritual body is or can be like. But one or two places in the scriptures give you an indication of its extreme powers. Our Saviour in the resurrection exhibited powers that no ordinary human being can have, and yet we're going to be like him. So that, you see, it's opening up a vista of possibilities that are beyond us at this present moment. We're limited, as we should be. But we'll go on with this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, or life-giving spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural or soulish, the pity of it is we can't in our language get a word like the word soul over against spirit. That's the word natural, soulish. And afterward that which is spiritual. 
The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord, from heaven. Now he says, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, well we have friends, we're all in that image that was first of all revealed in Genesis 1. Every one of us are in that image, the image of the earthy. But then if we belong to Christ and are his redeemed people, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So that if we are like Adam, now we're going to be like Christ, then. Now, of course, I have not seen or ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of men, the things that God has prepared, we can only dimly visualise what it will be. Nevertheless, our attention is drawn to the fact that we should be like him. And when you look at um, the first epistle of John, the first epistle of John, which has something to say in this connection, third chapter, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, or children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. I've got on this chart the little note you see, the word icon, meaning an, an idol or an image. Icon is from the Greek word meaning to be like. We shall be like him. We shall have that transformation taken place, which is the climax of Philippians chapter 3, if you will just turn to that epistle. Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, For our conversation, or our citizenship, polycuba, our citizenship exists as a fact, not merely the verb to be here, but it is the word that goes on without alteration, used of Christ, who being in the uh, chapter, chapter 2, he says, who being in the form of God, that's not the verb to be, this is the word existing right the way through without possibility of alteration. And a very different word, eupako. So he says, For our conversation or citizenship exists as a fact unalterable in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change not merely our vile body, which is Old English, but our body of humiliation, the very same thought in he in the second chapter when it says that Christ humbled himself. Humbled himself. Who shall change this body of humiliation which we have here. That it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory that he has there. So this word image, you see, is not merely a little speculation that doesn't matter to us. It involves the creation of Adam and all his descendants it involves the person and mediation of Christ and it involves something to do with our prospect of future glory. 
although I'm dealing with these things and drawing your attention to them, I'm not pretending I know very much about it. But it is a part of my business to let you see that it is so and may the Lord work upon hearts and minds of each of us to make it more and more real. But isn't it a comfort to know that we're going to put off, we're going to lay aside the earthy, the image of the earthy, and we're going to be transfigured and transformed and as Colossians says, translated, what changes are going to take place? And much as we love one another here and are glad to see one another, I'm positive we're all glad we know we're going to be very much changed when that day comes. In fact, that's what the revelation of 1 Corinthians 15 says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, translated, transfigured, but we know we're going to be changed and transfigured in the likeness of the beloved Son of God. And if we can get no further than that with regard to what the hope before us is, what a prospect we have. Leave all the details as to the phases of the second coming and whether it's to be on the earth or in the air or in the heavenly places. You can leave those to a large extent to God himself for you'll make no mistakes. But all the prospect at the end that we're going to be transfigured, changed from the image of the earthy to the image of the heavenly. And that heavenly one, although to look upon his face made John, the beloved disciple, collapse at his feet as though he were dead, Nevertheless, that glorious one is the one who put his hand upon little children and blessed them. And it's that one who stooped to the ignominy of the death of the cross for our sakes. What a person. What a prospect. What a saviour. So I've put under the, uh, the, under the word believer just three words I've just taken because they begin with the same letters. Conformed and changed and created. Shall we look at those three verses because they carry the story on? Romans the 8th chapter. Romans the 8th chapter. Those of you who know the construction of the epistle to the Romans, you will know that the 8th chapter is the climax of the doctrinal section. After that, we have uh, the dispensational teaching about Israel and the olive tree, and some practical teaching. But here we get the climax in Romans the 8th chapter. And so when he's bringing it to a close, he says this. Verse 28. In contrast with the fact that we sometimes do not know what to pray for as we ought. Notice this, friends. The apostle, even the apostle, wasn't one of those glib persons who at any moment, at any time, can speak to God in prayer and go all around the universe and tell him everything that he ought to know. He said, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, many a time. But he says, there's one thing I know in the midst of all my ignorance, what's that? That even though I do not know what to pray for, he says, I know this, I know this, that all things work together for good to them that love God, even though I can't understand how the process goes on who are the called according to his purpose. Now that reference leads him on. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate for what purpose? There are some folks, the moment they read the word or hear the word predestination, they go off at a great angle 
and denounce the whole thing as robbing men of his freedom of will. But they haven't stopped to read what God said. Aren't we going to say that it's an awful thing to contemplate and a wrong thing to contemplate that God should predestinate his believing children to be conformed to the image of his Son? Surely it's the most wonderful thought to realise that he has put it in his will. This word predestinate has nothing to do with the word destiny. This word means to do what any person has done who's ever made a will, who has appointed a certain person to be a legatee, and has left to them money or whatnot. And if man can do that without compromising the free will of somebody else, surely God can do it. I wouldn't object to anybody limiting my freedom of will by giving me a few thousand pounds in their will. It would be very useful to us. And here God says that he has marked off before, and that's the word predestinate, pro-horizo. The horizon is that thin imaginary nine that marks sea and sky. He's marked off beforehand certain numbers of his people. And what does he mark them off for? For the highest destiny you can imagine, that they should be conformed to the image of his son. And he's the firstborn among that group. What a wonderful thought. What a family. And so we have that word conform. And then we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I hope I've got the right reference here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, yes. Uh, the whole chapter is dealing with the two covenants. The ministry of Moses, who had to cover his face, because the glory that was shining on the face of Moses was passing. The next chapter says, we all, the, other, the next chapter says that um, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, whose glory is not passing. Don't forget the two faces are the key words of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. So it says in verse 13 of chapter 3, and not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So he put a veil over his face because the glory that Moses had was passing. But then he says, verse 18, But we all, now our version reads, what a pity, we all with open face. It's the very word for unveiled. It's still using the word for the veil. Not merely an open face. We all with unveiled face. Do you see what it's saying? That the holy beings at the right hand of the throne of God that are revealed in the scriptures, when they say holy, 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 they veil their faces. They veil their faces. And yet it says that you and I, who had fallen so low in comparison with those holy beings, we all with unveiled face with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. Don't you see, twice we've had this thought. One John says, we know not what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, as though the very sight of him has this quickening, transfiguring effect. And here it says, 
And they are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Oh Lord, what things have been said about those words glory to glory by forgetting the context. Changed from the glory of the law of Moses which was only a shadow to the glory of Christ which was a reality. That's a change indeed, isn't it? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3. Now Colossians chapter 1, as you remember, we've already quoted it, refers to Christ as the image of the invisible God. And it's not left there, because it's picked up in chapter 3 as having a bearing upon those who are believers and those who trust in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. He says, And you have put on the new man. The old man is put off in Christ. The new man is put on. You have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. So this knowledge is renewed after the image. The image evidently in mind is that in chapter 1. And we put on the new man, and by so doing, we begin to approximate to the new creation of which Christ is the head. Because in chapter 1, if we turn back again, you'll see that first of all he's the creation of all things in heaven and earth, visible, but also invisible. And then in verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's not only the firstborn of creation, but he's the firstborn in the new creation of which resurrection is the beginning. And once again you see this word image is related to many things quite outside what we might first of all expect of such a word. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 I think may have uh, a word for us too. Yes. Uh, where he speaks in contrast to those who with open face are transfigured. I think perhaps we'll take up the first four verses. Therefore seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy we faint not but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now I'm going to suggest a little alteration in the translation here without going into every detail. I'll leave it for you to follow. But if our gospel be veiled, that's the first thing, not the word hid, it's the, the word veiled is here just the same. What a pity. This, this point of the veil, you see, is hid twice already from us. But if our gospel be veiled, it is hid by those things which are passing or perishing. What things? Well, the things that belong to the law of Moses, which are passing away, the, the glory that was not lasting. Don't you see what this is telling you? That the God of this age doesn't mind you reading the Bible, so long as you read the wrong part. If he can get you obsessed with the law of Moses and ordinance and ceremonies, and forget Christ of which they speak, well, that will satisfy him, all right. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, the oozy image of God, should shine unto them. So he veils the truth by holding in front of your eye 
those things that are passing, so that you shall not believe and trust and rejoice in those things that are permanent. Now, I'd like to go back again, uh, just for a moment, to the reference that was given in the beginning of uh, chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, because of that title. I didn't stop on it then, because I didn't know how much time I might have, and I haven't got a great deal of time now. But in case anyone should wonder that I didn't adopt the general translation that the word Adam means red earth. The usual way in which if you read commentaries that the word Adam means red earth. Well, there is a, there is a word, Adama, and it's very likely that we should uh, immediately think of that. But now let's look at the few names that we have in Genesis 1, 2, 3 and 4. The name Cain. Well, it's immediately followed by an explanation. She called the name of this firstborn son Cain, for she said she, I have gotten a man. And that word gotten is the word Cain. The verb. So his name was called Gain, G-A-I-N, because he had been gained. Maybe. Or in the next chapter, or at the uh, foot of the next chapter, it says, um, that's chapter 4. Verse 25. She called this son Seth. Seth. Now that word translated Seth is translated and can be translated by the word Seth. Take the H off the end of it, that's all. Seth. Appointed. She called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath Sethed me. Hath Sethed me. Another one. Appointed. So Cain's name is explained in the very verse. Seth's name is explained in the very verse. And there's one other passage. Chapter 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Now, when we read our version, we don't realise that the word Eve is the word living. The word Eve gives us the word life. So, Eve means one that's living. Seth means one that was set. Cain means one that was gained. And Adam means what? Don't you see how strange it is that we know exactly what Cain means, what Eve means, what Seth means, and we're left guessing about Adam? Not so, because in the very same verse where he's called Adam, oh, and of course, in our version, you wouldn't find him. Chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man. Now, that's the word Adam. The first occurrence of the name Adam is there. Let us make Adam in our image after our likeness. And the word likeness is the root word that gives us the word Adam. Because the Hebrew language is built up of very small root words. And the very small root is D-N, Adam. And the word likeness is Demuth, D-E-M, with an ending to it. So there it is. Adam was made, and particularly his first importance is, he was made in the image or the likeness of the image of God. And he failed. But nevertheless, he was a figure of him that was to come. And as Paul said, and those of you who were with us last time and considered the mystery of Christ, how I mentioned to you that the Septuagint has preserved that which we've lost sometimes, that written across, the written against Psalm 8 in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it actually has got the words, the secrets of the Son, the secrets of the Son. And no other writer in the New Testament quotes the last verse of Psalm 8, but the Apostle Paul. He does so in Hebrews, in 1 Corinthians, and in Ephesians. 
And he says, that's my, that's what I understand about the secret of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. He says, I see in the, in Adam, created in the image of God, a likeness and a foreshadowing of what it's going to be when the true Adam will have a dominion that will not be limited to sheep and oxen. And there will be a paradise that will not be limited to a garden on the earth. But what a prospect it holds out to us. And as a last word, friends, we can now start over again with the practical outworking of this. Oh, if we belong to Christ and we are to be like him one day, surely the summing up of all Christian practice is this, that we should seek to be like him as far as it's humanly possible in this day. I don't think we need worry very much about whether a thing is right or wrong, or whether it's legitimate Christian practice or isn't, if we can in any measure feel that we are conforming to the image of his Son. I know that's a sweeping statement and a very great generalisation, but ultimately, he's to be the firstborn among many brethren, and just as we have in this day, a family likeness exhibited by members of the same family. So there will be a very wonderful family likeness when they're all together in the Father's home, whether on earth, in the heavenly Jerusalem, or in the glory at his own right hand. One family with a family likeness. Oh, may his mercy be extended to us that the family likeness may be more apparent than it is sometimes here in this walk below.